Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. Welcome, listeners. Thanks for coming and joining us for this episode. Woo! So banter, banter, banter. <laughs> we asked when it, will this feel natural, but I'm not sure it ever will. And I was thinking about this because I think about weird things when I take a shower. I was thinking maybe it's good that it never does feel natural because in in the reality of our situation... We're individuals who are sitting alone in rooms right now, you and I, and we're connected over the internet, but then we're talking to people who don't exist. So when we say listener, we're just talking. So, I mean, I feel like in some way that should always feel a little strange. I would also love to be a fly on the wall for other podcasts Mm. just to know what the first part of it sounds like and how much (laughs) they remove uh, from the first part. (laughs) It's fun, but I mean, it's kind of what makes it a little charge every time we do it and getting psyched up for it. And I hope that never goes away. Yeah. Maybe I'll just get a, like a motivational poster (laughs) of a room full of people and just pretend that's who I'm talking to. (laughs) I like it. It always reminds me of that Seinfeld episode where Kramer had a talk show in his living room. And sometimes it does feel a little bit like that's what we're doing. (laughs) I couldn't pretend it's my neighbors because then I'd be like really mad at them all the time. (laughs) And that's not you, listener. I love you. I'm so grateful for you. you. Even though in this moment you're imaginary. Yeah. Well, I was about to say, I'll say this is so stupid. But the thing I was about to say was, (laughs) we're talking to people in the future. How is that stupid? Are you high, though? (laughs) It makes me wonder. (laughs) This is just my natural state of being. (laughs) And we all love it. Me and our imaginary future audience. Yeah. The tens of millions of you all listening. We love you. (laughs) So sometimes we kind of like pre-rough outline banter, and this week we didn't. So I'm just going to say, like, what's going on in your life? Well, this is where I have to really rack my brain for positivity. It's been a (laughs) tough work week that I am very happy to put to bed. But I feel like people can relate to that. So I think some of that is good because we should say we're recording this on Friday. So both of us are done with our work week. And if we want to get real, real for a second, there's a piece, sorry to date this listeners, but we were really on a trajectory for the pandemic to be ending. (laughs) And then anti-vaxxers said, no, no, no. Yes, yes. (laughs) We've got a little variant we want to get out there. And so (laughs) it's just sort of been between work and just facing the existence of who knows how long another six months fully in the pandemic that I thought was about to end is like cool cool I know it's so weird and it's weird how it's kind of become a part of life and I guess that was always going to be true but like I was sitting down with my coworker the other day and we were mapping out our next six months and I was like 
okay, so I need to have this surgery done. And last year it got postponed because I tried to do it after Thanksgiving and we had the Thanksgiving peak. And so this year I'm thinking before the Thanksgiving peak and it's like making life plans around COVID, knowing now how silly people are and what it's probably going to look like. Ugh. Well, and this is someone I have never been before. I started this week, I don't know if it was like a coping mechanism, Mm -hmm. but I started looking forward to the holidays. I was like, okay, you know what? If I'm not having summer, then get summer out of here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm done with the heat. I'm done with the smoke. I am ready. You know what? Give me spooky season. (laughs) Give me Thanksgiving food. Give me the holidays because I'm ready for it to be dark outside and bundled up. If I can't do anything really fun, then get it mm-hmm. out. Yeah, I'm kind of with you, kind of. Only kind of, though. You have a much less mild winter than I do. <laughs> yes, our winters are not so pleasant. And also, I get summer hours at my job, which I love. And so next week is the last week of summer hours for me, and I'm, you know... I mean, I like my job. I don't want to give the impression I don't like my job. I actually love my job. And I really like working 830 to 3. That's nice. And not on Fridays. <laughs> Should just keep the same salary and those hours forever. Yes, that would work for me completely. And then we could produce so many more podcasts. If you and I both had summer hours all year long, oh my gosh, we could be making podcasts like crazy. The fact that we're able to make this podcast with full-time jobs is amazing Um, because I'm very proud of it. Same. And, you know, we put a fair amount of time into it, not to, like, (laughs) go on and on about our process, but we do. We invest a lot of time in the episodes and the production and the website and all of that stuff, and I feel really proud of the quality myself. Yeah, I hit this... There is that good part of it, of the pandemic, of not having a social life, because I'm, like, (laughs) audio editing from, like, 9.30 to midnight, just sort of (laughs) sitting in my room, (laughs) nowhere to be, to the point where it's, like, I I enjoy the audio editing, but there's sometimes where I'm just, like, sitting in my room, and I'm, like, God, I'm so bored. It's, like, oh, I could do some podcast editing. (laughs) It's perfect. It is kind of a perfect pandemic hobby. It's filled a lot of time that I would have been doing things that were just completely useless or napping or, you know, whatever. And then once we get that uh, simply safe and (laughs) whatever mattress and uh, the online mental health. Yes. (laughs) Then we can uh, go to like 80% at our jobs. Yes. Okay. So Simply Safe. I, I am a Simply Safe customer um, in, in truth of fact. So I think they should be our first, our first get. Simply Safe, if you're listening, we love you and I use you and it's fantastic. I don't use you, but I also live in an apartment. Uh, my current home security system is just the booby traps from Home Alone. and being home nonstop (laughs) and being a I mean a gentle giant but a giant of a human yeah for sure I think if you know 
there are nefarious people out there casing, they're going to just skip right over your apartment. Oh, listeners, that's a peek behind the curtain. I guess you can't tell through your headphones that I'm seven foot, eight (laughs) inches tall. (laughs) Yes. And built like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mm, And I'm going to just say, because there is the, you know, little bit of this that's my dating profile, too, for the the people, that that's not actually true. I am tall, uh, but I'm not that. (laughs) <laughs> and I would not describe myself an Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, in a similar body type. Just your political views. Whoa. <laughs> he did come out, like, for vaccination, though. The governator mm-hmm. is, uh, I, he and I can agree on vaccines, and uh, <laughs> we'll see how much. He did a lot of bad stuff to California. Yeah, yeah. What else is going on? Well, that's for the struggle, because everything in the world is bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think what, what I've been up to. We're preparing for back to school, which is, you know, buying binders and art supplies. And I'm trying to get into that mentality for my kids. So one of my kids is just like I was, who... I loved school. I loved going back to school. The summers were boring for me. I wanted to be around my friends. And so she's buzzing. I mean, she's just, and so I'm trying to tap into the memory of what that was like, like Mm -hmm. the excitement and a new year was going to be like a new life. You know, it was just full of possibility. And then my other daughter is kind of like, whatever. She's just, you know, school's cool, but being home is cool too and she just goes with the flow (laughs) so trying to kind of navigate that is is interesting but I'm looking forward to them having a consistent place to be from 7 30 to 3 30 (laughs) every day I can imagine (laughs) so everyone go get vaccinated so we can keep schools open all year long that would be wonderful Please. And Pfizer, get me that booster. Because your numbers aren't looking great. And I, I gave you permission to be inside of my body. Uh, and you're not upholding your end of the deal. So uh, let's get that booster going. I'm down for the booster. Yeah. All of it. I mean, just inject all the drugs into me. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a Saturday night. <laughs> For someone else. (laughs) But at least in these times, I've got podcasts to listen to, but also music. Yes. Oh, speaking of music. Speaking of. Segue, segue, segue. Listener, as you can tell from the title of the episode that you've already clicked on, this episode we're going to be talking about Selena. Selena the great. Okay, before we get started, though, we do want to shift gears. You know, it's fun. We enjoy this podcast. But, you know, we're talking about crimes, uh, real issues, uh, and also sort of society at large as we delve into the pop culture side, too. So we do want to acknowledge the ways in which our chosen topic, you know, the cultural influence of crimes lends itself disproportionately to white, hetero, cisgender stories, because those are the communities that are most widely covered in the media. 
and it's not an accident that certain crimes capture the world's attention. Predominantly white, hetero, and cis-owned media groups make conscious choices to cover and not cover particular crimes. That coverage is then metabolized by society, and when certain cultural conditions are right, used as the seeds for work of art and other cultural artifacts. Yeah, and so we've been thinking a lot about this problem and how to address it on Most Foul, and more on that to come. But for this episode, we want to call out that neither of us identify as Latinx. We chose to cover Selena's story because of its enormous impact on our culture, but we do so knowing that our understanding of certain elements is limited. Our story takes into account the influence of Selena's cultural background, but in order to avoid assumptions and stereotypes, we are going to stick just to the documentable facts. Documentable, is that a word? Yep. Works for me. (laughs) All right. Shall we just jump in then? Yeah. Okay. So as we start our story, um, I'm going to go kind of back to the beginning because I think Selena's story is really compelling. um, And she's so much more than just the crime and the murder that she is partially well known for. The artist we know simply as Selena was born Selena Quintanilla on April 16, 1971, in Lake Jackson, Texas, which is a small city just south of Houston near the Gulf of Mexico. Selena was the baby of the Quintanilla family with an older brother, A.B., and an older sister, Suzette. By all accounts, they were a close and loving family, although Selena's father, Abraham, was very strict with the children. And... According to Abraham and some other family members, his strictness was in part because of his faith as a devout Jehovah's Witness and also because of the Mexican-American cultural influence in his own upbringing, although he was born in the United States as well. Abraham was a musician himself, and he dropped out of high school to pursue a singing career in his hometown of Corpus Christi. He and his bandmates, again, all born in the United States, began creating music in English, which was their first language, and they were inspired by the popular quartets and doo-wop sound of the 1950s. The band, though, often encountered racism, discrimination, and even threats of physical violence during their early years when they booked non-Latinx venues. The band eventually moved away from English-language music in favor of the Chicano rock genre and Spanish lyrics. Although Abraham eventually left the band, as the Quintanilla family grew, music was still a huge part of his identity, and he fostered a love of music in his children. When Selena was 10, the family opened a restaurant called Papagayo's, and Selena and her siblings began performing for patrons in the restaurant regularly, with Selena leading on vocals, A.B., her brother, playing bass, and Suzette on drums. But this configuration was short-lived, as there was a recession in the 80s, which closed the restaurant and pushed the family into bankruptcy. So when that happened, the family relocated to Abraham's hometown of Corpus Christi, for a fresh start, and it's around that time that under Abraham's management, the band Selena y Los Dinos was formed. The band was initially just the three siblings, like before in the restaurant in Lake Jackson, and as they recovered from their financial losses, they played on street corners and at community events, just for small change. Slowly, though, their popularity grew, and by 1984, they were touring the region on a refurbished school bus and had recorded their first eponymous LP. Like her father years before, Selena preferred to write and perform songs in English, 
After all, she was an American girl born in Texas, and English was her not only her first language, but her only language. Uh, she didn't speak Spanish at that time. But because of his experiences with racism and discrimination, Abraham believed the band should record in Spanish and their music should reflect their Mexican heritage, although the Quintanilla children also had Cherokee ancestry on their mom's side. Selena and the band chose the locally popular Tejano genre as their focus, and Selena learned to sing the Spanish lyrics of their first album phonetically with her dad's help. She eventually took classes and became conversant, but never fluent in Spanish. In spite of Abraham's best efforts to shield his family from the discrimination he had faced over 20 years earlier, Selena encountered a different form of discrimination. With German, polka, jazz, and country music influences, Tejano, which is also known as Tex-Mex music, had a long history as a male-dominated art form. It had grown out of a tradition of traveling singers who moved from community to community to provide entertainment to the isolated farms and ranches of southern Texas and northern Mexico in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Because of this, many people believed that a female singer could not be a success in Tejano, and the band's early days were marked by vocal criticism, booking difficulties, and open discrimination from promoters. Selena's talent was undeniable, though, and that talent combined with a natural business acumen and drew comparisons to another 1980s superstar, Madonna. In a world before personal brands and influencer workshops, Selena understood the business and had a talent for branding herself and engaging with her audience on a level most performers today would only dream of. By 1989, Selena had five more albums with Selena y los Dios, a record deal with EMI Latin, a debut solo album in production, and a deal to be spokesperson for Coca-Cola in the Texas market, which is a huge market. That year, she also met a young guitar player named Chris Perez, who had joined Los Dinos. The chemistry between the two was pretty much immediate, and within a few months, Selena and Chris were an item. At 19 and 20, it was only natural that Selena and Chris might form a bond and become romantically involved, but the couple, anticipating resistance from Abraham, kept their relationship secret from everyone. Selena's star continued to rise, and the busking-style concerts of just a few years earlier made way for booked venues throughout Texas, the Southwest, and even parts of Mexico. In 1991, it was after one of these concerts that Selena and her family came to know Yolanda Salvador, a 30-year-old registered nurse from San Antonio. Yolanda, the youngest of a family of eight siblings, was on the cusp of a promising medical career. After attending the University of Texas in Palo Alto College and graduating as an RN, she, made, she landed a $60,000 job in a dermatology office. Yolanda struggled almost immediately, though, hopping from job to job with accusations of embezzlement and loan defaults following her wherever she went. It was around this time that Yolanda's interest in Tejano began. Yolanda had long been a country music fan, but as her friends exposed her to Tejano artists, her focus shifted. After attending a Shelley Laris concert, Yolanda had the idea to start a fan club for her. She approached Shelley's father with the idea, but he quickly declined. At the urging of some friends, Yolanda attended one of Selena's concerts soon after that. Although she originally didn't care for Selena because of what she saw as Selena's domination of the Tejano Music Awards earlier that year, whatever that means, something in Yolanda shifted after that concert. 
she began contacting Abraham with the fan club idea that Shelley Lara's father had dismissed. Her persistence soon paid off, and sometime in 1991, Yolanda took over the San Antonio fan club for Selena. Now, this is in a pre-social media, pre-smartphone, pre-internet as we know it era, so fan clubs played a really crucial role in helping young performers gain an audience. Yolanda soon grew the fan club from about 400 members to 1,500. Now, these numbers may seem minuscule by today's influencer-driven standards, but you have to remember that for every membership, someone sat down, filled out a paper form, wrote a check, put it in an envelope, and dropped it in the mail. That is a lot of commitment and effort and ultimately engagement, um, a lot more than just clicking like or hearting a post like we do now. Totally. (laughs) Selena and her family were amazed at Yolanda's success and devotion, too, and she was quickly let into the family's inner circle. During this time, Selena and Chris's bond grew stronger. However, sometime in late 1991 or early 1992, Abraham learned about their relationship. As the couple had expected, he disapproved strenuously, and he forbade them from dating. But by this time, Chris was 22 or 23, and Selena was 21, 22, and she was having a taste of her own power and success at this point. She could probably begin to see her life coming into focus, and she knew what she wanted. They were not about having their lives dictated by Abraham anymore. They continued to see one another until the conflict with Selena's father became so bad that Chris was fired from the band. So seeing no alternative, Chris and Selena decided to elope, and on April 2nd, 1992, they became husband and wife. Abraham initially rejected them and became somewhat estranged from the family, but in time, as Selena had predicted, Abraham's beliefs about the sanctity of marriage outweighed fears he may have had about Chris and his perceived machista traits. From 1992 to late 1994, Selena's life and career continued to blossom. Andrew's going to talk about this in a little more depth later, Uh, but I think it's fair to say that, as cliche as it may be, all her dreams were really coming true at this point. The male-dominated Tejano scene embraced her wholeheartedly, fans and the industry folks, too. Her dream of recording a, quote, crossover album in English was becoming a reality. And I say, quote, crossover because she spoke English natively, so she wasn't really crossing over from anything. If anything, she had crossed over into the Spanish language market initially. Mm -hmm. She also had a passionate, although not perfect, marriage, and she and Chris were beginning to talk about having kids. She parlayed her keen fashion sense and experience designing her stage costumes into a clothing line and two boutiques. In fact, some friends have said that fashion was her true calling. So in early 1994, as she planned the expansion of her fashion empire, Selena turned to faithful employee and now friend Yolanda Salvador, who had made such a success of the fan club. Salvador became manager of the two initial boutique locations in Corpus Christi and San Antonio, and later that year became Selena's registered agent in San Antonio. By late 1994, though, Abraham had begun to receive concerning reports about Salvador's management style and ability. Abraham and other business contacts warned Selena about their suspicions and advised her to exercise caution where Salvador was concerned. Even journalists who interacted with Salvador during this time noted that her devotion bordered on obsession. 
Soon, the complaints reached a critical mass, and in January 1995, Abraham began an investigation, which led to the discovery of significant embezzlement by Salvador from Selena's fan club and the boutiques. In early March, Abraham, Suzette, and Selena finally met with Salvador to confront her with her findings. Abraham fired her from her various roles within Selena's business holdings, and he demanded that in order to avoid police involvement, Salvador needed to provide records to explain the missing money. Selena, though, remained ambivalent about taking such a hard line with Salvador. She believed that Salvador was the key to the fashion line's success, past and future. She also worried that taking a hard line with her would jeopardize important business and tax records, the sole copies of which were in Salvador's possession. So Selena still had hopes that she could disentangle the business relationship amicably and keep Salvador as a friend and confidant. On the morning of March 31st, 1995, with the idea of an amicable separation all but gone, Selena met with Salvador one last time at a Corpus Christi motel, this time on her own, to retrieve the remaining business records. Unbeknownst to her, Salvador had purchased a 38 caliber revolver a couple of weeks before, damningly just two days after she had been fired for embezzlement. Just before noon, Salvador drew the gun on Selena, and as she attempted to flee, Salvador shot her once in the lower shoulder, severing an artery. Selena was able to run to the lobby and name her attacker before she collapsed. She was rushed to the hospital immediately, but Selena Quintanilla Perez was pronounced dead on arrival. Salvador ran to her truck in an attempt to evade the police, but she was spotted by a responding cruiser and boxed in. She remained in a standoff with police inside the truck, threatening to kill herself for nearly 10 hours before surrendering. In December 1995, jurors deliberated for less than three hours before returning a guilty verdict on the charge of first-degree murder, and Salvador was sentenced to a term of 30 years to life. She will be eligible for parole on March 30th, 2025, one day shy of 30 years after the murder of Selena. So those are the facts of the case. It's such a sad story. And, you know, we talk a lot, Andrew, about being mindful of the stories that we tell and definitely doing everything we can to avoid victim blaming. But when I think about this case, in hindsight, it's hard not to wonder if Selena took the wrong lesson from her experience with her father and his really insular approach to the family affairs particularly the way that Chris was treated. You know, did Selena learn in that experience not to trust her father's instincts or his counsel? And did that lead her to doubt his warnings about Yolanda while there still might have been time to sever things amicably? I mean, it's all conjecture, but I can't help but think about Selena's final months and the decisions that she made about her business and her career. Um, and, and just wonder if some of that was a response to his stifling influence, which is pretty well documented. Again, I'm, I've worked hard not to editorialize here about their relationship, but I have to wonder, did Selena ever think to herself, you know, my father had been so wrong about Chris, what else is he wrong about? Mm-hmm. But this is the type of story, and this is a glimpse into me, but it pisses me off for money. Mm-hmm. There, there was no... Obviously, no need for murder is so stupid to say, but, like, she got a $60,000 a year job in the 90s. She was That was a wealthy. ton of money. Yeah, that was a ton of money. 
not enough. Oh, I need to keep embezzling from these jobs. Mm-hmm. It's like these pieces of shit people. And it, it it's so different, but it reminds me of like the husbands that kill their wives for the insurance money. And mm-hmm. it's like, just get a damn job and grow up. Mm-hmm. It's like you stole someone's life for money. It, yeah. uh, I, I don't know why this type of story. And I think it's because I saw the movie so young that like even as you were retelling the story I was seeing it happen through the movie mm-hmm. in my mind mm-hmm. yeah and it's just like how dare you you mm-hmm. killed someone for money and not even that much <laughs> like not a, right not right. to say there's a price but it's not like she had millions stashed away it was probably like 50 grand right yeah. I mean, the actual number that I found that she had embezzled was $30,000. Oh, my God. Yeah. Just get a damn job. And she had jobs. She had good jobs. She had good jobs. I mean, you know, the thing that, you know, I have a little, um, like, side hustle as an armchair psychologist. So I'm always looking at things through that lens. And as I'm reading this, taking notes, it's like, okay, she's the youngest of eight, maybe didn't get a ton of attention at home, I think, which is a common thing when there are lots and lots of children, maybe had some kind of needs for attention. So she had this life ahead of her that was very promising, but also kind of boring, right? I mean, she's going to be an RN in a dermatology office for her life. And it seems pretty clear that she had something else in mind for herself from the very outset. And also, there are threads here and there that this is almost like a combination kind of motive. I think there was the money aspect, there was the fear of prosecution and maybe going to jail aspect, but also, I mean, there are reports that she was pretty hardcore obsessed with Selena. Um, and so it could have been motivated by this fear of not being in her inner circle, of losing access to this person who she was obsessed with. So I think there was just a lot going on with Yolanda. Again, like I'm not explaining or excusing it. It was horrible. But I think it was a lot more complicated than one simple motive. But yeah, it's just ridiculous. And I think the thing that makes it all the harder is that of all of the circle of people involved in this, Selena was the one person who was pulling for her you know, and really wanted this to end well and for them to stay friends. Um, So the irony of that is just, it's really, it's a bitter pill to swallow. So the thing about this is like, I have like a naive, idiotic sense of justice, which I feel like also is why I have road rage when I'm driving, (laughs) where it's like someone does wrong and then takes it out on you. Because they did wrong. Mm-hmm. So, like, Yolanda was guilty. She was the thief. She was the betrayer. She did everything wrong and then immediately bought a gun and was like, I'm going to kill her because they know that I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Like, I had a car almost hit me running a stop sign. I honked. And then they honked, honked, honked. S- tailgated me honking for like 10 minutes and I was like you almost hit me Mm -hmm. by running a stop sign and 
I honked to say, hey, don't hit my car. Yeah. And then now you want to, like, violently violate me. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, like, triggers the same, like, idiotic sense of justice. But, like, my ultimate pet peeve is when someone is wrong and makes mistakes and then retaliates for being called out on being wrong. Yeah. I mean, I could talk about this all day from the psychological perspective because I think that's a pretty well understood psychological phenomenon of displacing your own feelings of shame and I'm going to get it all wrong. It's It's not truly projection, but it is displacement, I think, of certain feelings that they can't handle or are not integrated. And so it's like, I'm, I'm either bad or I'm good. And if you say that I'm bad and I make you go away, then I'm good again, right? So it's like, it makes no sense, truly, from a logical standpoint. But I think that's pretty common. I think it's pretty common with people who are not very psychologically healthy. And, and I, that applies to not only people who are so not psychologically healthy that they murder people, but I think... You find that, like you said, in, in the driving example, in all sorts of ways in life. It could be a big example or a small example, but it's people like pushing their own kind of like shadow self onto other people or pushing it away and trying to have distance psychologically. It's fascinating. But it's just like they didn't even press charges. No, I know. I know. And her immediate impulse two days later was to buy a gun to kill at least Selena, maybe Abraham, who knows what her plan was, but her immediate response to being caught stealing from these people was to buy a gun to kill them. Yeah. But, you know, that's why I mentioned the stalker-esque things. And in one of the articles that we linked to in the source notes, so for more information on this, definitely check the up notes because there are links with sources to all of this. But someone mentioned that Yolanda's apartment, so she moved from San Antonio to Corpus Christi to be closer to Selena. And someone mentioned that they went to her apartment for something and inside, oh, I know what it was. She got a roommate and the roommate moved in and it wasn't just like a picture of Selena. It was like criminal minds level shrine like psycho Mm -hmm. shrine and the roommate moved out after two weeks she was so creeped out so i think you know even though there was the money and the business thing was the trigger i think in terms of understanding the crime and understanding the psychology of salvador i think thinking of it as more of a stalker crime makes more sense i think it was just a freak, a fluke, that basically a stalker was allowed on the inner circle, right? So I think in another scenario, they would have said no, and she would have become the prototypical stalker from a distance. But in this case, for, you know, whatever reason, she was allowed in. And so she had this access. And so I think really what drove Yolanda was this like cutting off of access and this like rejection, which was like an ego fracture an ego blow. And I don't mean ego in the like mainstream sense, but I mean, truly like her psyche, her ego. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the best way I can understand it. I think again, on the surface, it looks like, and it was cold blooded in the sense that it was planned. She went out two weeks before she got the gun. And then what's interesting, and I didn't go into all the details, but she got the gun 
two days later, she returned the gun. And then, like, a week later, she went and repurchased the gun. So I think there was, like, Selena was making overtures in there. So she, the initial confrontation happened. She got the gun. Maybe Selena was trying to mend fences. She returned the gun. And then things got bad again, and she went and got the gun again. So it was definitely cold-blooded and planned. But, I, you know, she was not all there in the way that we think of people being truly all there. Yeah, that's a good way to think of it. And it's definitely triggering for me. I don't know. I don't talk about it a lot. I don't even know if we've talked about it. Maybe it's come up in conversation in our friendship, but I I had a stalker. And I didn't know that. It was a fluke thing. And I, you know, I can only speculate now, but like mental illness for sure. Mm-hmm. It was a stranger. Mm-hmm. Um, in one of my college classes, we so had scary. to like form groups and exchange like numbers, you know, like you join a college class and the professor's like, oh, well you have a group and exchange numbers so that if you miss lectures or you need to get notes, you have a couple people to reach out to. So then it's like, we texted like, eh, hey, this is me, this is me, whatever, whatever. And then like the next day I had like 20 missed texts and it's just ratcheted up to full throttle just texting 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 to the point where she uh broke into my car when i was at work and hung her hair from my rearview mirror she was like following me she was sending me texts like because I'm like, stop talking to me. Don't ever talk to me, whatever. I didn't know what to do. I was so young. Yeah. Well, I mean, I still don't know what to do. Like, not to say that I was young. Like, if it were to happen to me again right now, other than immediately going to the police, like, and and she would say things like, no, I saw the way you smiled at me. I know it's real. And um, if we can just be together, I won't hurt you. Yikes. And so I had to go through, like, the whole restraining order process and change my school schedule. It was a whole mess of my life. And so thinking of Yolanda in those terms of, like, again, I'm not a psychiatrist, psychologist, but, like, it's good to remember. It's not just the money. Like, there was something so clinically wrong with her and her obsessions. And from my own experience, knowing that that can happen instantaneously. And I fully understand and appreciate and acknowledge that the vast majority of stalking is men stalking women in previous relationships. Like, I know that what happened to me was a fluke. Mm -hmm. Um, So just to acknowledge that in this space, uh, you know, having worked in sexual violence, prevention marketing, like, in reality the vast majority of stalking is men stalking a former partner or um, someone in that. So I don't know, just to throw that out, (laughs) like I know what I'm describing is a real exception to the norm. Um, But that also fits with possibly Yolanda in that same way. I totally agree. And I think your example just goes to show how, how impossible it is to, filter for that because, you know, I think the popular misconception is that the victim did something to encourage it on some level. And I'm saying this kind of jokingly, but not, I mean, you're a gay man. And so you weren't doing things to encourage that. Like very clearly, there's no kind of question about that. 
and yet she hooked on to something, you know, so that is just a very clear example of how it's in their mind. And again, I think with the Selena situation, whatever happened in that moment where they saw her as, you know, helping with the fan club, you know, and again, in this time, the fan fan clubs, I don't even know if they exist anymore, but if they do, they're all digital. But at that time, it was kind of a real, like, bricks and mortar kind of thing because you were collecting checks and forms and sending out t-shirts and so you know they saw in her this kind of cross between a fan but also someone who could cultivate that groove for them and so she was again let behind the velvet rope and I think she probably always had that propensity if they had said no to her she would have moved on you know just like she had moved on from from Sarah like mm-hmm. would have moved on to the next to the next until some point like the psych the psychological pressure in her life would have gotten to the point or she would have attached to someone to such a strong degree that she would have become that stalker at a distance but she slipped by and then things were going her way she was she was getting like that need met because she was in the circle and it was only when that was threatened i think that the real like stalkerish kind of stuff exploded because prior to that she got all the access that she wanted. She moved to be closer and Selena hung out with her. And so, I mean, it's very, it's very interesting. And again, I don't mean to, you know, put blame on, on Abraham. I do think that there's a thread of this story that is very sad. And, you know, I think it's easy to see him as a stage father, but there was a lot of love there. I mean, he loved Selena. He loved his kids. He had a really difficult time when he was young with racism. And so I think he was doing his best with the tools that he had to navigate all of that. And, you know, he continues to manage her legacy in a way that kind of treats her like a child, even though she was a grown woman. But I don't know, it's it's still hard to assign a lot of malice or, or even anything all that negative because there is so much love in that family and it's really obvious even if you don't agree with all the choices that he made but you know as someone with kids and every day is making decisions that I hope turn out for the best I have sympathy with him in those moments of being faced with fears for his kids future and not knowing how to act and going back drawing upon the way that he was raised for guidance and what to do. And that just happened to be a very like, you know, patriarchal kind of patronizing way of, of thinking about Selena, even though she was this very talented, very powerful, very opinionated woman. And, you know, it's sad to know that we'll never know what might've become of her career, of her life. Well, and this is, we don't need to, go deep into this but I'd like to acknowledge as well the like the role that being a Jehovah's Witness played in it I mean it's an extremely sexist in my opinion cult mm-hmm. um, I in my mind it goes Jehovah's Witness or well it goes Scientologist Jehovah's Witness Mormon mm-hmm. as an ex-Mormon that's how mm-hmm. I feel it like from like hardcore cult and then transitioning into mainstream accepted religion and so I, I think that can't be ignored either. Like, in spite of that, there's, like, so much abuse. Uh, women are so um, held back 
in Jehovah's Witness culture and community. So I, again, we're not a podcast to go into that, but I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't just say that it, it had coloring into his decision and view and sort of seeing Selena still in the childlike sense and always being in control of everything, I think is also a piece of the religion. Yeah. I think it was a weird intersection there. Um, and it is curious. I mean, again, we'll file this under dissertations. We'll never write, but I do think that his family's, um, experience as Mexican Americans in the South at that particular time influenced their conversion to Jehovah's Witness faith. Um, so his parents were the, the ones who converted when he was a teenager. Um, and then he continued with that. The kids were raised that way, but Selena was not. So she had a, a high degree of faith and identified as Christian um, and very Christian. So I think that's another interesting angle is when we think about her as this kind of feminist icon, you know, girl power, rar, like she was pretty conservative herself, um, but also saw herself as distinct from her family and her father. So there was a lot going on there that makes it very complex. But yeah, I think there was definitely some of that religion component. And just as an example, as I was reading about this, when her father arrived at the hospital the day that she was shot, not knowing that she had already passed away, the doctor came out to speak to him and was explaining basically all of the life-saving measures that they took to save her life um, and talked about how much blood they had given her. Um, I think the doctor's perspective was hoping to give him comfort that they had tried everything that they possibly could. They gave her a lot of blood, and ultimately that's what she died of was blood loss. Um, and the father, before he could even be told that she had died, said, oh, no, she's Jehovah's Witness. She can't have blood transfusions. So, I mean, that's the degree of, like, in it he was, that even mm -hmm. as his daughter is, I mean, she had already passed at that time. In his mind, she's on the precipice of death, and he's, he's, gonna, he's thinking he's going to refuse her a blood transfusion. So, I mean, it was very much a part of who he was um, yeah. and very much a part of her upbringing. But, yeah, so it, it's a complicated case. I find them to be an interesting family. But, again, even as, you know, I think there are some harsh judgments on him. So, for example, in Jehovah's Witness faith, there's a strong emphasis on modesty of dress. Now, of course, that disproportionately applies to women, but there was a natural conflict there because Selena dressed, you know, it was kind of provocatively. I think by today's standards, it's pretty tame. But yeah. at, the, at the time, it was considered very provocative. And certainly for a girl who had been raised Jehovah's Witness and had this strong Mexican-American kind of heritage, it was considered very pushing the envelope. And so her father was opposed to it initially. And so I think it's very easy to look at the scenario and be like, well, once she started becoming famous and making money, he kind of let that go. So he picked and, mm -hmm. ch and chose what what he really dug his heels in about. And I think, you know, that can look pretty cold hearted or cold blooded. But again, I mean, I don't know. There's just a humanism there that comes through. I think it would be very easy to dismiss him as a stage father and this kind of like hypocritical person who allowed things as long as it advanced her career. 
But I do think that he was just a complex man who was conflicted himself and wanted the best for his daughter and saw these avenues, but, you know, had been raised in, as you say, this kind of cult-like religion and, and had a lot of those beliefs really ingrained in him. Yeah. Well, all that aside, this has been an interesting one from the cultural lens because everything she did was pop culture Mm -hmm. and there's no way to know exactly where her career would have gone. I mean, she was a rising superstar in her own right. And then her murder catapulted her forever into like legacy status. And so it's hard to know exactly where she would have been in reality. I, you and I have chatted I feel like, there's a chance she could have been Beyonce. Like, she mm-hmm. was so smart, so talented. Her crossover was coming, ramping up. So with that said, I felt like it was important to look at Selena's impact on culture and her music kind of by the numbers. So not too nitty-gritty, but I feel like it also helps tell the story of her impact. Mm-hmm. Never miss a foul detail. Follow us at Most Foul Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. So in 89, she released her self-titled debut album, and it peaked at number seven on the Billboard Regional Mexican Albums chart. And so with this being her debut, the album performed better than a ton of her female Tejano singer contemporaries. And I say female because, as you said, Kirsten, it was a, and probably still is, but was an extremely male-dominated genre. And so that that was sort of the comparison point in all the research that I found yeah. was comparing her to other females as opposed to male Tejano singers, at least in the beginning, until she became the superstar. Mm-hmm. So then in 90, she released her second album, Vin Conmigo, which is Come With Me in English. And it her popularity just continued to grow. So by 91, the album went gold, sold more than 50,000 units. Uh, and it, it made her the first female Tejano singer to ever receive that honor. Mm-hmm. So the album peaked at number three on the regional Mexican albums chart and debuted at number 22 on the U.S. top pop catalog albums chart so it's ramping up already with album two Uh, and then in the u.s this album has sold more than 500,000 copies yeah so then her next album entre a mi mundo enter my world came out in 92 um it peaked so number one on the billboard regional mexican albums chart for eight consecutive months wow i thought you were gonna say eight weeks months it was the second best-selling regional mexican album of all time so now we're into the she's beating the men category yeah Yeah. i mean her fame and again like that's why it was i wanted to say like who knows who she could have become her she was on a rocket already it just so happens that her death kind of like Princess Diana immortalized her mm-hmm. because so many artists die from overdose and suicide or something that we view as like an internal thing mm-hmm. where Selena and the fact that it was a murder 
and her life was taken, it like put her in sort of a different class of lost musical artist. Yeah, it's like instead of the storyline of squandered potential, it was stolen potential. Mm-hmm. And so that album sold over 600,000 just in the United States. Wow. And it also peaked at number four on the U.S. Latin chart, and then number 97 on the all-around U.S. Billboard Top 200. Wow. So she is already by this point dominated... Um, the regional market and is making her way into the all around U.S. market fully with Spanish music. And at the time, I mean, we still we're kind of like in a Spanish music moment, Mm -hmm. but like that was not happening at the time in U.S. English speaking music. Right. So then in this album era, she was called the biggest Tejano act in the country after her performance in Nuevo Leon attracted 70,000 concert attendees. My God. Her it's next a long album, way from performing on street corners. <laughs> I, yes, 70,000. So her next album, Amor Prohibido, or Forbidden Love, was released in 94. Um, and so when the album tour broke attendance records, Selena became recognized as one of the biggest U.S. Latin touring acts of all time. So wow. now she's stepped beyond Tejano music yeah. into Latin as a generalized category altogether. Which at so that as, point, I mean, was, you know, like Gloria Stefan and, I mean, in the 80s, really big names and early 90s. Mm-hmm. And so aside from peaking at number one on the regional Mexican albums chart and staying at number one for 97 non-consecutive weeks. Wow. It also topped the chart for four years in a row. Oh, my God. So it was the best-selling album on the regional Mexican albums chart for four years in a row. It became the first Tejano record to peak at number one on the Billboard Top Latin albums chart. So she's elevated Tejano to the number one of all Latin genres. And it stayed on that chart in the top five for 98 consecutive weeks. Wow. My God. Years. I mean, four weeks sound, I mean, four years sounds made up. <laughs> yeah, it's like astounding. The only one who is even close on any of this stuff is like Adele's albums. Mm-hmm. And that's not like in the top, like she stayed in the top 200 for years. And I think she had one of her albums was like the best selling album two years in a row. But like, so that's what we're talking about in today's standards, like superstar. Mm-hmm. And then after her death, the album re-entered the Billboard 200 chart. So that's the main all-genre everyone chart. And it peaked at number 29. Wow. Within three weeks of the death, it was also certified platinum. It was recertified 36 times Latin platinum. Mm -hmm. Um, And that album has sold more than two and a half million copies worldwide. Wow. It's the second highest certified Latin album in the U.S., and the best-selling Tejano recording of the 90s, and it remains the best-selling Tejano recording of all time. Wow. Um, It's also been ranked among the most essential Latin recordings of the last 50 years by Billboard, uh, and Rolling Stone put it at number 19 on their list of 150 greatest albums ever made by women. That's incredible. 
Uh, it was the highest ranked album by a female Latin artist and ninth highest ranking of a woman of color on that whole list from Rolling wow. Stone. That's amazing. So then her fifth and final studio album, Dreaming of You, was released posthumously in 1995. Mm-hmm. And it debuted at number one on the Billboard Top 200, the first predominantly Spanish language album to ever do so. Um, it sold 175,000 copies on the first day just in the United States, which wow. was at the time a record for any female vocalist. So Madonna, yeah, everyone. I mean, again, like I'm here for the, for the, um, <laughs> the ancient historical perspective. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a time when you would walk into your bedroom, turn on a computer and click a button. Like you had to get off your ass and go to a store and buy a thing and then bring it home and then listen to it. I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot of units for this old way of of consuming music that we had. Yeah, and thinking of white anglicized America, um, well, first the album went on to sell five million worldwide. But as of December of 2020, it's still the best selling Latin album of all time in the United States. Wow, wow. So it goes without saying. Selena is pop culture mm-hmm. and there's a piece that's hard to separate that her music, she was a superstar before the murder and she had a trajectory that was going nowhere but up, but the murder will also always be a part of her musical impact too. Mm-hmm. So it's not surprising that she's influenced a ton of artists. Jesus Trevino Alcoran, whose title's Senior Director for Latin and Global, compiled a great list that I'm going to pull from, and we have that linked. Um, but this is sort of a list of artists that have publicly gone on record saying that Selena's inspired them. So first, Queen Bee herself, Beyonce. Yeah. <laughs> uh, growing up in Texas, she was inspired by Selena's music, and e- she even got to meet her at Houston's Galleria Mall before she became famous. Wow. Um, and like Selena, Beyonce would later record her first Spanish-language EP in 2007, and she was assisted by a vocal coach who provided the Spanish lyrics phonetically, which is how Selena started as well. I didn't even know that Beyonce did that. Oh, yeah. Hmm. It's pretty good. She had a she had a moment in the aughts. So <laughs> I was like, what is that called, that decade? <laughs> Um, And in preparation for her recording, Beyonce would listen to Selena's music. Wow. So next up is Cardi B. Now, the internet had mixed feelings when Cardi proclaimed herself the trap Selena on her (laughs) verse in the song Motorsport. Uh, And then Cardi went on and she tweeted, I said trap Selena because who didn't want to be Selena? She's an alter ego that everybody would want to be. And I want the world to know how much I love her. And beyond the music, Cardi's also worn several Selena-inspired performance outfits. Oh, cool. And then we transition over to the yeehaw country queen, Casey Musgraves. (laughs) Uh, And Casey had a viral moment when she paid tribute on the 24th anniversary of Selena's final concert in Houston. Casey covered in her concert, Como La Flor, completely in Spanish, and the video went viral. Wow. 
Puerto Rican rapper Bad Bunny has listed Selena as the icon he wishes he could collaborate with. Other notable celebs, Colombian reggaeton artist Carol G, the kings of bachata Adventura, uh, singer and actress Becky G, an incredible singer in her own right, but also sister of Beyonce Solange. Mm-hmm. And probably more than anyone else, we have Jennifer Lopez. Yeah. Who owes so much of her success to Selena. But before we get into more into J-Lo, we first have to talk about the film. Mm-hmm. So shortly after the murder... There were several media projects released really quickly, including eight unauthorized biographies, six documentaries, two Quintanilla family unapproved films were in production. All of this led Abraham to start production on an authorized biopic within weeks of her death, a process which was reportedly, I mean, I say reportedly because I read it, but understandably extremely difficult the family was in mourning um and you know there's speculation about securing the legacy i don't know there's you know people speculate about the motives i think anytime it's family and money everything's just intertwined but within weeks he started this process and according to him, he believed the film would help put an end to the false rumors that were circulating through the media at the time. And he wanted to immortalize Selena, and this is a quote, in a true, positive, and beautiful way to celebrate her life and to quiet and put to rest all of the negative ugliness. So he partnered with producer Moctezuma Esperanza and writer-director Gregory Nava. Um, now, where JLo comes in is through a historic casting call. Over 21,000 people auditioned for the titular role. What? 21,000. And this became the second... double the size of the town that I grew up in, just FYI. (laughs) (laughs) It was the second largest audition since the search for Scarlett O'Hara in 1939. How have I never heard this? So, massive draw trying to find the right person to portray Selena. And so there's a lot that I left out. It's an interesting story in its own right, if anyone wants to look it up. But the announcement that Jayla would be cast was described as the role of a lifetime for her. And so she was already an actress. She'd been a fly girl. She had a couple movies. But a big piece of it was also that she got a $1 million salary, which at the time was the highest paid Hispanic actress of all time. Wow. Wow. So this was a huge deal for Jennifer Lopez. I catapulted her to stardom. I'll talk more about it in just a minute. Um, The film was released in 1997 and received mostly positive reviews. And Roger Ebert said, The teenage and adult Selena is played by Lopez in a star-making performance. Mm -hmm. Commercially, it was also a success. It made over $35.5 million domestically in its theatrical run. And in January of this year, all 38 members of the U.S. Congress's Congressional Hispanic Caucus signed a letter addressing the Library of Congress formally nominating the movie to be added to the National Film Registry. Mm. Uh, And the film even inspired a stage musical that launched in 2000 and went on a 30-city tour before restaging in L.A. and running for over 200 performances. Wow. So, huge. Mm -hmm. And... It's no surprise that J-Lo calls Selena her mentor 
In an interview with NBC News, she said, and another quote, it was a great thing for her to be my mentor in a way and teach me so much about how to navigate this business, but also how to navigate this life. If she were here, she would be doing what I'm doing right now. It's a sad story. It still gets to me. It really did mark my life at the time to get to know the family and work with them. It was an important part of my life, and it still is. Mm. It was those learnings that launched her music career. She said, I decided right after the movie to make my first record, and I did. Wow. J-Lo was not a singer, performer, recording artist. So when you think about it, Selena's life and death launched an entire segment of J-Lo's career. Yeah. The music is all a factor of playing this role. Right. Jenny from the Block, everything she's done in the musical space can be attributed as a ripple effect, a butterfly wing flap from Selena's life and career. Yeah. And, of course, we have great memes <laughs> with <laughs> J-Lo. We'd never have the incredible Mariah Carey feud and how Mariah doesn't know her. <laughs> but J-Lo is a pop culture icon in her own right. Her films have a cumulative gross of $3.1 billion, and she has an estimated record sales of 70 million records. Wow. And that music career wasn't even going to happen until right. after she played Selena. And very similarly, uh, this isn't in my notes, it's just things that I happen to know. Like, J-Lo's dad is a Scientologist. J-Lo uh, was born in New York, an English speaker. She learned Spanish phonetically and got in a, such a similar track yeah. as Selena. And even the Spanish album she's recorded, like she, ev- she had sort of these crossover moments as well as an American-born English speaker. It's just so interesting, the parallels in their lives. Like, it, it's such kismet. That is so interesting. And one thing I'm wondering, and I don't, maybe you don't know this, but at the time that she was cast, was there any pushback that she wasn't of Mexican descent? Or Oh, yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of unhappiness. I mean, her being Puerto Rican descent and from New York. I mean, even, like, beyond just heritage, like, Texas versus New York City. Yeah. There, there actually was a lot. There was a petition, a demand to cast a Mexican-American actress. Um, and really what won it over was, so recreating the massive concert in the film, um, it wasn't 70,000 people, but the film got almost 30,000 people to come to the Houston Astrodome as J-Lo was performing. And again, remember... She was not a singer yet. Right, right. She's an actress acting as a singer. And she had to perform as Selena for a crowd of almost 30,000 people. Wow. And that's how she starts her musical career. But that is the moment that was credited with her getting public acceptance. It happened in Houston. It wasn't paid. All those nearly 30,000 people were there as volunteers. Um, and it swayed the crowd so much. I mean, she looked so much like Selena. She yeah. performed like her. Um, and that moment is sort of credited as winning over and silencing a lot of the criticism about her not being a Mexican-American actress. So interesting. Yeah, I've read a couple of interviews with the family, and they talk about the moment that she they saw J-Lo on stage as Selena 
and her sister, I think, commented that she had to do a double take, that for a moment her brain actually thought it was Selena, that the way she, all the little mannerisms, the way she moved, the way she lifted her costume as she like descended the stairs and just all those little mannerisms that actors work so hard at perfecting. She said it was, it was uncanny. Mm-hmm. And I know JLo studied recordings and tapes. She worked really hard. I mean, think about the mantle and the responsibility of yeah. this role. I mean, and I so- personally love JLo as an actress. I don't always like all of the roles that she chooses, but She's a good actress. She's a really good actress. I also love J-Lo as an actress. (laughs) But when you think about, I mean, just this alone, you know, we have this premise of, like, there's crimes and they've inspired pop culture and how has that happened. Just Jennifer Lopez alone is probably the biggest pop culture impact we've done so far on the show. Right. Well, and the fact that... You know, today she could just be J-Lo, the actress and the dancer and not ever have gone into singing, which is Mm -hmm. hard to imagine. But yeah. And I mean, she just did the Super Bowl halftime show with Shakira, like huge. Well, and, you know, I wonder, too, you talk about how she views her as kind of a mentor. There are elements about J-Lo's stage presence that feel very like descended from Selena and her stage presence, which she was so well known for. And she doesn't get into this, but I imagine some of the work ethic as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's not the only retelling. Um, recently in 2020, Netflix released the first season of Selena, the series, which is, you know, another telling of her rise to fame and the sacrifices she and her family made along the way. And so this series is also authorized by the family. And so her dad and her sister Suzette were worked with the producing. And it wasn't a critical success per se, but Netflix announced that the series was watched by 25 million households in the first 28 days of its debut. Wow. And I think probably introducing her to a whole new generation of people who may mm -hmm. be aware of her, know her music, but don't really know her story. But it's not just the music. The movie, the TV shows, numerous documentaries, so many true crime series. Um, There's lots of ways that Selena continues to impact the culture. Um, She's known as the Queen of Cumbia because she was one of the first musicians to sing in the techno-cumbia style, which incorporated hip-hop beats and disco-style dance. Because of this, many historians and critics believe that without her success, today's bilingual reggaeton artist would not have been possible. Wow. She, of course, she has her star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. She's been on a U.S. postage stamp. Mm-hmm. San Diego State has a, their school of journalism and media has a class on her called Selena and the Latinx Media Representations. Wow. And so the class description uh, reads, it mediated representations of intersectional Latinx identities by analyzing the Tejano singer Selena, Latinx media audiences and niche marketing, historical and contemporary issues of Latinx representation and identity formation maintenance on digital media. Wow, that sounds like a cool class. 
Um, just because it's a callback, uh, in 2016, her waxed figure was unveiled at Madame Tussauds Hollywood. I saw um, that. We, we got to put that picture on Instagram. It's too perfect. And in the same year, Mac Cosmetics released a limited edition Selena makeup line after there was a petition circulated for the company to do so. And that petition got 37,000 signatures. So they created it. And it became the best-selling celebrity line in cosmetics history. Wow. In 2016. Yeah. So, like, the superstardom, the impact has not slowed. Yeah. And then in 2019, Forever 21 launched a clothing line celebrating her legacy. Um, And in 2021, she was posthumously presented with the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Awards, which her family received on her behalf. Mm-hmm. Um, and last, Selena's own life-size bronze statue monument, Mirador a la Flor, or Look Out of the Flowers, was unveiled in 1997 in Corpus Christi. And it's estimated that about 30,000 visitors come every single year wow. to her monument. So like I said, in terms of pop culture, Selena's life and living legacy has impacted the world more than any episode we've done so far. And Mm -hmm. it's going to continue to do so into the future. It's incredible. It's really incredible. And, you know, we do all this research, but now saying it out loud and talking about it, it just, I feel overwhelmed with this feeling of sadness at what was lost. You know, for me, when this happened, I was in my early twenties and Definitely had an awareness of it, but at that time was very ensconced in my white bubble and not too aware of her before her death, Um, but certainly after. And there was a sense of because she hadn't quite achieved mega stardom yet, at least in like I'm using air quotes, mainstream slash white media, she didn't yet have that like veil of fame, right? Mm -hmm. So when she died, it felt very personal. And, you know, I think the scene of the crime fans flocked to immediately, like while Yolanda was still in the truck with the gun, there were fans on the scene and the news were there. And so it was reported on, I think, in a way that felt very like, not like every person, but had a much more every person quality than you would see on the coverage of someone who was already, who had already achieved that superstar status. And so Mm -hmm. I, I think for that reason, it really connected with a lot of people and resonated and brought her to like the larger awareness of American culture. But you know, we talked a little bit about where she might be. And, you know, when I read a friend of hers saying that, you know, she, she made music, but fashion was her real passion. And when you look back at her childhood, you, you kind of wonder maybe was music her dad's passion and she carried that on. So would she have even continued in music or would she have become a business person, like fashion icon, or would she have done both? And she could have gone into movies and, And a lot of the ways in which superstars conduct business now, she was already all over that shit back then. So I think she would have had like, you know, a line at Target and she would have had, you know, a makeup line way before she ended up, you know, she would have done all of that. She really was a visionary, I think, when it came to to business. Probably like Rihanna. Yes. 
Yeah. Massive musical success, massive charts. I number one hit after number one hit. I mean, she's got like she's one of the top number one artists in history. Um, and then the move into acting, mm-hmm. um, some successful, some not successful, but that's, I think every, every star's journey as they transition into acting. But Rihanna's had some really great roles in acting and now she's a billionaire because of her makeup line, her clothing line. Like, I think that is probably a close correlation, except Selena would have been the originator. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it really, the sky's the limit. I think she would have for sure been a billionaire. And I mean, I think that, you know, she just had a certain star quality. So it happened to be Tejano and it happened to be music because of circumstances, I think, in her life. But, you know, if you look at what happened to Tejano after her death, it's almost not even a thing anymore. And I think that it reached the level of, popularity that it did because of her, you know? And so it's kind of interesting to think of all of these guys being so against her being a part of it. And really she brought it to a level that it couldn't even maintain once she was no longer involved in it. Mm -hmm. And so listeners, if you're feeling in the mood, uh, we're adding some Selena songs to our most foul playlist Definitely give them a listen. Spend some time with it. I mean, in in our research, we got to spend so much time with her. So I think it's only right to spend some time listening to her music as well. Definitely. Definitely. Well, thank you, Kirsten, for such great storytelling. And thank you, listeners, for going on this journey with us. We appreciate the hell out of you. Absolutely. This has been a Facts from Janet production. 